got a great sound to play in Hello? Have you ever snubbed a lady? Um, we had a technical problem. Are we on? Yeah. We're on there. Can I swear? Shit! Welcome to Crunch and Roll. We are back. I'm Foxy. Did some breakfast shows across the UK on commercial radio. Did a little bit of work for the BBC. My guest today is the legend, Alex Lester. Of course, the Dark Lord, if you like, but definitely not Red Lester. Now, we chat about how he wanted a job where he didn't have to wear a suit, how he accidentally cost the BBC tens of thousands of pounds in repeat fees, and how he managed well over two decades on Radio 2 and how it all came to an end. Just before we kick off, just a quick reminder that we are now on Ko-fi, so if you like what we're doing and you want to support future episodes, you can leave us a tip at ko-fi.com forward slash crunch and roll. So that is ko-fi.com forward slash crunch and roll. Okay, the strong language, a little bit of adult content coming up, but let's crunch and roll. Oh yeah. Alex, how are you? I'm absolutely fine, thank you very much indeed. All thank, well. Thank you so much for being on Crunch and Roll. It's uh, it's an honour. Look, it's an honour for me. I, not many people ask me about me any longer. And of course, my favourite subject is, of course, me. <laughs> so I'm enjoying this immensely and have only just started. Well, firstly, um, where were you born? At Walsall in the West Midlands. Okay. Um, yeah, that's that's the end of the conversation, really. <laughs> have you been to Walsall? Well, I've lived in the Midlands for many years. No comment, Alex, no comment. Walsall was terrible in 1956 when I was born, and I was just come back from Walsall today. And I have a fondness for it because it's my hometown, but it's still terrible in many ways. But then again, so many other places are too. It's gone up and it's gone down, and I think it's in the in the doldrums again at the moment, which is a bit of a shame, but still. Right, a couple of things you can uh, you can fact check us. Um, are you the son of a doctor? Yep, that's right. Poor old Doctor Lester just actually. Uh, he, he he carked it just about two months ago, so oh. I was actually up at his house. So don't don't worry about that. So he won't hear this, or he may do. Well, that's killed it, hasn't it? So we finish that's it. That's right. Ninety six. So you know, not bad going. Not bad. Not ninety six, and he was at home right the way through until um, about the last four four hours of his life. And so when he got carted off to hospital, and he was you know, completely out of it, on the oxygen. I was in the, I was actually in Eastbourne at the time, so I came screaming up the uh, motorway, thinking, will I get to the Manor Hospital in Walsall in time? This is, this is a good story, I'll, you'll like this. And um, he's talking about the death of his father. And so coming all the way up from Eastbourne and got into the hospital, and my sister and brother-in-law, they'd been there for a long time. They'd been sort of watching over him, and the nurse said, look, there's nothing else we can do. And so about 11 o'clock, my sister and brother-in-law said, I'll tell you what, you know, we've been here for ages. We're absolutely knackered. Nothing seems to be happening. We'll go home. I said, well, I'll hang on till midnight. Then I'll go and stay at his house. And we'll come back tomorrow. Okay, fair enough. So therefore, I stayed with him for another hour. And I went, you know, talked inconsequentialities about biscuits and things like that. And uh, it's my radio. It's my radio upbringing. And um, patted him on the head and said, you know, love you, Dad. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. And I got out of the car park and I'd gone genuinely, no word of a lie, I was about 800 yards down the road and the phone rang and it was the nurse saying, I'm sorry, he's gone. So I turned the car around, went back in the car park, went straight into the ward and there he was. And I went, thanks, Dad, you've just cost me an extra three quid in parking. 
mean, I mean, that's just, um, you know, it's nice that you've got a humorous story to share, but I don't think I've put my foot in it in the first 10 minutes, Alex, so I apologise about that. No, don't look, you know, who's to know? It's, it's, you know, it's one of these things. You don't broadcast it necessarily. I put it on my Facebook page because he was a part of the Radio 2 show uh, in many ways because people used to suggest things for his birthday what to do and the best one was he should be fired out of a cannon for his 80th birthday which he quite liked we gave him a snorkel and flippers instead but uh so he enjoyed that and also he was a great storyteller so therefore i a lot of the my material came from him and then he'd go oh people have been talking about your show it seems that i've you've taken the story of mine and you've embellished it and out it's gone you know, yep that's right thank you for that so uh no he was a good source of material my dad well, let me move on to the next fact check. Um, uh, I was always uh, frustrated. My mother's dead, by the way, and I've seen it for 22 years. I just thought I'd throw that in just in case, uh, you know, you were going to go on there. I've got an auntie left. She's 92. <laughs> I was going to say, whilst I was a radio presenter, I was always a frustrated zookeeper. Is it true that you worked at Dudley Zoo? I did. I did. Um, my <laughs> I left school. And for three pounds a day, I worked at Dudley Zoo in the land of the dinosaurs, which um, was basically a fiberglass or a stegosaurus and a Tyrannosaurus rex. And their heads moved in a rather wobbly fashion. And they um, had an eight, this is dating everyone straight away, it's an eight-track cartridge playing backwards of lions roaring. That's apparently the authentic sound of a Tyrannosaurus rex. They can tell from fossils, you know. That's how they sounded. And I also had to light the volcano using some oil and grass cuttings. And uh, because they realised that for everyone, everyone's sort of five pence to go in, it was pretty bloody boring. They hired me to dress in a gorilla suit, a green one, um, and sit very quietly. Now, it was actually just a boiler suit covered in that stuff you get in greengrocers, that fake grass, and a monkey mask in, attached to a balaclava. But they couldn't have... And gloves. But they couldn't afford... <laughs> shoes so it was just basic my plimsoll sticking out the bottom and i had to sit very quietly and every so often go boo and a frightened life i've had to pass by um uh, kids would throw stones at me and one bloke tried to beat me up because he i frightened his wife so much the pram fell over and the baby fell out <laughs> so this was all for the princely sum of three pounds a day which you have to say was a lot of money in those days i realized that showbiz was in my blood at that particular point <laughs> Well, how do you go from being a, a, a green gorilla at Dudley Zoo to, to finally getting on radio? I mean, did you always dream of being on radio? No, not at all. This is the thing. I, I you know, I have you know heard your podcast, and there's so many people had radio bedroom and all this sort of stuff. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Absolutely no idea. And when I left school, I still had no idea whatsoever. And I ended up doing a thing called communication studies at Birmingham Polytechnic, and um, it was a diploma. It's now. It's, now a degree, damn it. And uh, what you did was, you know, did lots of different subjects. And the second half of the summer term for the first two years, you spent on attachment, a sort of work experience. The first year, I wanted to go to Beacon Radio, which was opening. Uh, but it was such a catastrophe as far as the, you know, the just administration and getting the thing off the ground is that they cancelled. So I had to go to Lucas's, which was the car component people in Birmingham who made, uh, you know, headlamps and stuff and they had an in-house journal wittily called reflections and so i was a cub reporter on that and uh if you've ever seen the film i think it's sort of a room at the top one of those uh kitchen sink northern dramas 
uh, it was very much like that because me and a guy called Terry uh, had to go around. One, he was the proper journalist and I'd hold the camera and we would go onto the shop floor where there were hundreds and hundreds of women with their hair in curlers, all smoking furiously, winding armatures. And the moment that two callow youths appeared, they'd start whistling and banging their spanners on the worktops. And frankly, you had to get out there quickly. I've never been manhandled or woman handled so much in my life, frankly. And so I know it is not welcome. Definitely not. And the second year, I went to BBC Radio Birmingham. And so when I entered the production office, rather nervously, there were two people standing toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose, yelling at each other at the top of their voices, threatening to kill one another. And I thought, this is more interesting. <laughs> and uh, so therefore, in a one only piece of initiative in my entire life, and this always also dates people straight away, when my attachment finished, and I'd learned to sort of edit tapes and get cups of coffee for people like that, this sort of thing, I actually demo-taped my telephone number to the typewriters in the production office with the words, exploit me. And sure enough, they phoned up, but I became the paid gopher on BBC Radio Birmingham's The Heart of the Nation Station's uh, breakfast show with uh, a chap called David Lloyd, who was a sweetheart, actually, though he did have a slight problem, which meant that I had to go and get, not David, there's a David Lloyd who's a, I think this David Lloyd is long gone now. I think he's right. passed. He was quite elderly then, I think. And um, he used to say, to, to he'd put the talk back down and say, special tea, boy. And I would go around to the production office, or the newsroom, in fact, uh, with a five pence piece which he'd give me, uh, get the coffee out of the machine, pour some of it away, and open the suit, uh, his briefcase to find there was nothing in there a bottle of VAT 69. Now I pour <laughs> some of that into his cup and take it into the studio where he sat there smoking furiously and, MPing, and, and interviewing MPs of the day. Uh, and <laughs> until one day I realised I could, I could control this guy. And I actually got him to drool. <laughs> he started to drool during an interview. And an MP came out one day and said, what's been going in that studio? It smells like a party's been going on in there. I think, well, I suppose it is, certainly in his head. Anyway, and that was my introduction to the wonderful world of broadcasting. <laughs> and I thought, this is all right, this is, because it was based at Pebble Mill. Yeah. And so, therefore, Pebble Mill had a bar. And you just go, Wow. You can basically arse about all day. Then you can go to the pub afterwards without even leaving the building. Now, this is the sort of job I fancy. And also, I don't have to wear a suit. So I never wanted to wear a suit. And so, therefore, there was a, there was a job which all local stations had at the time called a station assistant. And I applied for loads of station assistant jobs. And I got the 12th out of the 13 that I applied for. And it was a locum job, which meant that it didn't have its own station. You were sent where you needed to get where you were needed and local stations did different stuff and i was based in birmingham but the first place i went was hull to radio humberside yeah a place you know well i do yeah and i had to look it up on the map i had no <laughs> idea where hull was and i turned up in hull found radio humberside and i went in and said here i am and they went oh hi there um Right, okay, to my, just to we'll give you a show, show you around, and then uh, you'll be doing the farming programme. No. Like, what? <laughs> I'm from Walsall, for crying out loud. I don't know one <laughs> end of a cow to another. They, yeah, you'll soon pick it up. It'll be fine. And so there I was, on the air, every evening, doing a 15-minute programme from, I think, 5.30 until 5.45, and then we would join Sport, oh no, 6.30. Anyway, we joined Sports Desk on Radio 2 midway through the John Dunn programme. 
And then that was it. I was launched at that point. So so you go from Hull to Leeds? I go from Hull. I go from Hull. I go to Derby. I go to Leicester. I go to Radio London. Wow. I go to uh, Radio Carlisle. It was called where I did drive time, 5.15 until seven minutes to six, one needle time record. And also <laughs> the, the gardening the gardening feature with Henry Noblet in the Whitehaven studio. <laughs> Rock and roll. And that was, it, they were lovely. It was just such fun. And in fact, when the programme organiser came in one day and he saw me, I was having to put the, put the records on, having put the, the, the stylus on the, on the record using... Uh, holding one hand, and he said, "You sound very calm for a man who's shaking so much," uh, which is true. I was like twenty-three; I was absolutely terrified. But then I realised, now this is what I want. This is what I want to do. And I went to Radio Sheffield, and the guy that was in charge at Radio Sheffield became the guy at Radio Air in Leeds, who went fancy going to Radio Air. And I thought, wow, joining the cool guys in commercial radio. I will be, you know an ingot-wearing, hairy-chested DJ. Women will be falling at my feet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if I went to Radio Air, uh, which turned out to be a bit of a disaster, and I got fired after 18 months. Well, that, we nearly all did, actually. Did you, well, so why did you get fired? I mean, we'll come back to Radio Air, because we've one of our previous guests mentioned you uh, at the launch of Radio Air. But why did you get fired after 18 months then, Alex? Because uh, like so many launches, if you've ever been involved in a launch, they uh, rather overplayed their hand. They spent far too much money. And when the first JICRA, as it was, came in, we were there was only LBC had a smaller audience than us. Um, because I don't know, you know, there was plenty of publicity and things like that. <clears throat> it had been um, touted as a radio station, which was actually more in the BBC local radio model. So therefore, it wasn't sort of hit sound 40, you know, this week, you know, it wasn't so much, there's a lot of music, but there's also a lot of earnest stuff as well. And I, I have a suspicion that this, the signal wasn't very strong either. But, um, you know, so therefore, things started to go downhill. And, you know, from what I gather over the years, I don't think Radio Air, despite the talent that's been involved in it and everything like that, has been a, a runaway rating success. I'm, I hope I'm wrong, but that's what I've heard anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of our former guests, Martin Kellner. Uh, oh, that's where we met. Is that, is it? So, 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 fond memories of, of working with Martin? Because, I mean, there were, there were other amazing people on there as well, weren't there? Well, there was Andy Kershaw there. There was uh, James Whale as well. Um, Peter Levy, of course, he's on yes. the television now in the north. Yeah. Um, Eric Smith, who went on to Radio Shropshire and spent basically, you know, had a hundred years there before he retired. Uh, so, yeah, there was all sorts of people on there. I think thinking about it, um, it was fun because it was exciting, because it was new, but also immensely stressful because I realised that things were not going very well, and so therefore that could end very badly. And sure enough, it did, because they really had to cut the staff numbers right down. And I was told by the uh, managing director, they they got rid of the program controller, you know, so therefore we were sort of allied to him. So therefore we were all our heads were on the chopping block as a new person wants to, you know, sweep clean. And the managing director just said to me, we have, quotes enough smart-ass DJs. And with that, I was gone, not knowing what to do next. But luckily, I was, <laughs> you want frying pan and fire? I was saved by Centre Radio in Leicester. So I was offered a Sunday there. And also I was offered um, to do the mid-mornings and a Saturday show on Radio Derby. So therefore I was BBC most of the week and one day of the week I was commercial. And the fact is that they were only slightly overlapping. 
But, you know, centre were fine about it. You know, they thought, right, okay, fair enough, you just, uh, you know, get on with it. But uh, Radio Derby were quite happy with it as well. But the BBC management further up weren't. And I went, well, yeah, well, we don't like you doing that. Well, why? You know, it's only slightly overlapping. Yes, I know, but you're working for a commercial rival. I said, well, you know, Terry Wogan does all sorts of stuff. And they went, but you're not Terry Wogan. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. There is that, I suppose. But, and before they started to you know, get really, really turning the sort of the screws on it, um, I was let go <laughs> by centre radio because, of course, at that point, they were just teetering on the edge of bankruptcy and they couldn't afford the... Th- and this is the awful thing. They couldn't afford the 30 quid a show they were paying well, for me. Do you know, Alex, I was going to ask how much you charge because people keep letting you go because of the money. Uh, yeah, not very much is the answer. <laughs> you know, I didn't make I didn't make any money until I became properly self-employed because um, after... Derby, I thought, you know, I'd been at Derby about six or seven months, I think. And I thought, I failed because I got thrown out of two commercial stations. You know, not necessarily entirely my fault, but, you know, I really need to get back in there. And a very good friend of mine, sadly no longer with us, who I'd met at Radio Air, a guy called Mike Hurley. He was, does a lot, he did, he was a, a superb voiceover artist, he used to travel all over the place. And uh, he went to Radio Tees one day and and they, they phoned me up and said, they're looking for a guy at Radio Tees. Now, get in touch with Donald Klein. I've already, you know, paved the way and said, you know, because they want someone who's, you know, slightly different in you know, probably not, not very good, but uh, they want someone slightly different. And I said, you're the man. So I've, I've, re- I phoned up and they went, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And, and I went to see them and I met the guy, Donald Klein, who was an absolute revelation. Other people may have mentioned him because even though he left the industry 40 years ago, he was one of the few people who, A, really knew what he was doing and, B, could do it on a shoestring as well and, C, was brilliant with people. That was the thing. Brilliant with people. So, therefore, if things weren't going, he, you know, one day, for instance, for instance, he said, let me buy you a drink. I thought, oh, that's nice. I like that. So he went next door to the pub and he went, get this man a pint of beer. So I was handed a pint of beer, and he says, right, I'll see you tomorrow, and went home. So just standing in an empty boozer with a pint, thinking, well, that's not, not bad, is it? <laughs> not bad at all. But no, he was great. He was really was inspirational, and there were, I met many of those uh, in the industry. So he was great. And that's where I suppose the old cliche of I found my voice, and I knew, so I knew who I was at that point by the time I'd finished there. I did mid-mornings. Um, for most of the time I was there, and he left the industry. And then, of course, we got someone new in who decided to reinvent the wheel, and it all went downhill, and I left. I actually walked out uh, because they wanted me to sign a contract with me without me actually seeing it. So I refused, and that was the end of that. You mentioned that uh, you had to look at uh, a map to, to find out where Hull is. I mean, surely, you know, Radio Tees, which then became TFM, I mean, surely you were completely lost where that was as well. No, because I'd worked at Radio Cleveland before that. Right, so okay. I'd been Because I've been sent there for a few weeks. That's the thing. I used to get sent, you know, I did two weeks at Radio London. I did one day at BBC Radio Leeds. I used to go to Humberside quite a lot because they liked me there. I ended up doing their afternoon show. So, and they offered me the breakfast show, actually. But by that time, Radio Air had come calling. So I would go there for, say, three months at a time. You know, Radio Cleveland for about four weeks. Uh, Carlisle for about four or five weeks. 
Yeah, Radio Stoke, backwards and forwards there. I did Radio Derby as well before I actually ended up doing their lineup mid morning program. So that's how I started. I learned the country by being sent to different places. Um, so therefore, that gave me an idea of, of how, and that's why I suppose when I got to do some of the national stuff, I could always picture in my mind what the place was like yeah. because I'd probably been there at some point or passed through it. Did you enjoy traveling around doing that? Yeah, because you did something different every time. Um, and also, because it was the BBC, the expenses were very good. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's what, uh, uh, that was very useful. But yeah, you did different things. As I say, Radio Leicester, I was very often a, um, a reporter on the, their uh, breakfast show, which was presented by a guy called Mike Dickin at that point, who sadly died in a car crash. He became quite well known as a talk show host. Uh, the only problem was Radio Leicester had a tiny studio on about the eighth and ninth floor of uh, this office block in Leicester, and it didn't seem to have any air conditioning or anything like that. And everybody smoked in those days, so therefore I, I got to do. They had a request show, which I used to do from time to time. And you'd go in the studio, and you were sandwiched between Mike Dickin, who smoked cigars all the way through his breakfast show, and then a guy called Morgan Cross, who smoked cigarettes incessantly through his phone-in program. Crosstalk, see what he did there, and so therefore you're in the middle. Middle, I think I smoked myself back then, but I didn't really need to buy any cigarettes because, of course, there's just enough uh, tobacco smoke in the air uh, to 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 satiate any need anyway. Um, And uh, that's where I did my first ever radio show, actually, proper radio show. It was uh, I I was driving a bank holiday special, and Mike Dickin said, "I'm off to drive a, a rally car at Mallory Park." Uh, Alex Lester up next. I went, what? I know nothing about this. And what do you mean, I know nothing? And he went, well, haven't you been told? He said, no. He said, oh, God. Because there was a program organiser at the time wasn't very good with rotors. And so I'd admitted to tell the people involved. And he just said to me, he patted the top of the desk and he said, I, I've played those. I haven't played those. Bye. And that, the door slammed. And so, therefore, there's another two minutes of Radio 4 News. I'm going, Jesus, what am I going to do now? (laughs) And so I selected the first record, Dolly Parton, 9 to 5, bless him. And uh, away I went. And at the end of it, there was no one in the building because it was a bank holiday. I thought, I I expected it to be rather like the last reel of Frankenstein where the peasants with the lighted torches actually march on the the castle to burn the monster. And uh, nothing. So I got in the car and drove away and came in on the next morning and people go, oh, heard the show, Alex. Yeah, good. And so the next time I went there, I ended up doing more and I thought, yeah, actually, this is what I really like. Well, there's um, stuff testing, 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 testing. The dealer does a lot of work. In order to... Well, I'm all for being open-minded, but I'm not all for discussing this live on air. Thank you. We are profoundly uh, sorry. Oh, yeah. So in 1986, BBC Essex, you launched... Well, the, the breakfast show, um, breakfast show host, yeah. yeah on, on, that was uh, uh, that was an interesting experience as well because um, I'd I'd walked out of Radio Tees and thought right, okay, and there'd been a job advertiser at Beacon, so I went down to Beacon. And I went, hi there, you know, I've come about the job, and they went, what job? I went, the one that's advertised, and they went, oh, we just do that to trawl. There's no jobs at all. <laughs> what? <laughs> Oh, brilliant. So <clears throat> my parents were away. And so I went and stayed. I thought, I don't know what I'll do. I'll go down the pub and I'll stay at their place overnight. I'll get really early and drive back up to to Stockton to Radio Tees. But they came back early. 
So A, I was stymied, so I couldn't go down the pub. And they went, oh. And my mum was always very keen on me being on television, actually, bless her. And she went, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I've just been to see um, the Beacon Radio. Oh, right. Uh, that would be lovely if you were working. No, there's no job. Oh, right, okay. And so my dad goes, oh, so you'll be, uh, you'll be going back to Radio T. I said, no, because I've resigned. What? Hang on a second. Does that mean you, you've got no job? I went, correct. And he spent the rest of the evening behind the paper. And I could, every so often I hear, oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> and my mother would try to make things better by saying, I'm, this is a direct quote, bless her. She said, I'm sure he'll get a job no matter how long it takes. <laughs> so, uh, and, but a guy called Jules Bellaby, who uh, ended up at Radio York, actually, uh, was had been at Radio Tees with me, and Donald Klein had turned him into Oscar Bellaby because he wanted, you know, he, to having a crazy name for people. So a guy called Tony Harris became Harry Harrison, and he tried to turn me into Red Lester. But uh, brilliant, I went. Sorry, <laughs> is that the guy that blows out oil well fires? He went, no, that's Red Adair. It's not going to work. Thank God for that. So I was actually Alex Lester for the whole time I was there, rather than Red Lester. And uh, though I did have to give out Red Lester cheese in car parks, like standing oh. freezing cold in Spennymore, giving out Red Lester cheese. But uh, so I thought, all oh, right. So I applied for this job. Uh, the Jules phoned up and said, "Look, they can't find a breakfast show guy." I said, "All right, okay." I'm on the case. So I, down I went and got the job. And uh, I thought, phew. And then, being the BBC, we spent months, yeah, about six, nearly six months, going around every evening. There was a bloody meet or greet with the great and the good. Every single politician we met. And also, again, it was the time that Thatcher was really putting the boot into the BBC. And so, therefore, every time we arranged what we did do and had a sort of schedule sort of organised, there'd, there'd be some panic further up the line. And so we'd have to change things. So, therefore, we're going, we'll be doing this. Uh, no, we won't now. We're going to be doing that instead. Uh, and so morale just plummeted. It got worse and worse and worse. And on one occasion, I can still remember, it was absolutely marvellous because we, we, we were enjoying it so much. The guy that was doing the sport was having such an argument with the guy who was the programme organiser, both in separate offices on the phone, but they were yelling so hard we could hear both sides of the conversation echoing around the building anyway. And at one point they said, right, okay, what we need to do now is to have a proper clear-the-air session. So they booked a room in a pub and we turned up and we just yelled at them for about an hour. And they were, there'll be no, no reprisals, nothing like that. No, and they were, they were basically going, you've got no bloody idea what you're doing, have you? If I cried out loud, this is ridiculous. We've all come here under false pretenses to start a new radio station. You've got no idea what you want to do with it, apart from it's going to be a fucking disaster. It's all your bloody fault. And this sort of thing went on for it. People were banging the tables. It was absolutely fantastic. And then a couple of days later, I was summoned to the office and I thought, hang on, this is where the reprisals start. And sure enough, I got, I got yelled at for something as well. And I thought, oh, God, I can't stand this. Uh, and so I was there for 12 months precisely. And, uh, and then I, uh, my then girlfriend, actually, she spotted an advert in sort of Ariel, the BBC's uh, internal newspaper, for trainee announcers at Radio 2. And uh, she said, you've got to go for this. I thought, mm, do I really want to be an announcer? Uh, but still, it's Radio 2. But mm, what should I do about this? Well, I better give it a go, hadn't I? And also, and then, bless him, because a guy called Graham Pass, who uh, was doing the mid-morning show, 
uh, had been on attachment. He'd worked at Radio 2, had been producer at Radio 2, and his secretary uh, had been to visit, and she was still there. And, uh, you know, we got on pretty well, actually. And she said, ah, right. And she must, I think she must have put a word in because I got, I got the gig. So there I was at Radio 2 as an announcer. So Possibly so, the worst announcer <laughs> that Radio 2 has ever had. Well, forgive me, Alex. What was an announcer? An announcer was someone who actually is a bit like a TV announcer. They were, they, you had Basically, you had a number of shifts. Um, you had a news reading shift where you actually read the news. So the journalists would write the news, but you would read it. Um, and I still think it's actually, in some ways it's quite a strong case for doing that because, in fact, you know, because... You know, if it's if if the you know the news is read expertly, I'm not saying I was an expert, but if, you know, it's you know it's the stories. But you 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 can travel around the country and you can hear people putting all the emphasis in the wrong place and all this stuff and trying to trying to declaim the news, and it actually makes you wince. Um, but there's and also there was the continuity shift, where in the evening you have evening continuity, rather like you have on television. Yeah. So you'd put these programs on. And you'd go, right, and coming up next is so-and-so, so-and-so. And then you and there would be, you want to talk about overstaffing. This was the 80s, okay? <laughs> yeah. So there would be, you would have the news announcer, okay, sitting in one studio. There would be the evening continuity announcer, say me, for instance, sitting in another studio. I would also have a studio manager who was, you know, sorting out all the, uh, the, um, uh, the levels and things like that and putting the actual tapes on. And sometimes you'd have a tape operator as well. So uh, you know the, all that, uh, which was which was great actually, and it. And so this was apparently was trying to make it all foolproof, but didn't on one occasion. When um, it's one of those ones you think, do you have you ever had one of those moments where you think that's it, my career is now ended. Many times. All I can do is go outside and close the door behind me. Yeah, many times. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was a a big because BBC Radio Two did a lot of orchestral stuff at the time because it had orchestras, and you know we're talking you know, big orchestras and, you know, 40-piece orchestras. And there'd be, you know, some concert season, for instance, where you'd have not only an orchestra, but you'd have a choir as well, something like that. And they'd had this series. And it was, I don't know, they would, it, it, was, it had taken place, it was something like the Albert Hall or whatever, you know, they'd hired it all and done all this. It cost thousands to do it, even back then. And uh, so it was my job to, to, to put the programme on and, so we, we we checked all the tape numbers and things like that. Well, so we thought, and on went the program, the second part of the program, and because uh, it was a two part, that's right, the second part, and the phone started ringing. It was a duty office saying we're getting quite a lot of phone calls, saying this is last week's. Like, don't be ridiculous, because it isn't, you know, because I've got no idea. Because it all sounded the same to me. Because I'm such a philistine as far as Coron goes, you know, it's just, it's just whiffling away. And um, you sure? Yeah. Hmm. Hang on a second. I sort of put the talk back and talk to the studio manager. He says it's last week's. Nah, can't be. Just check the tape moments again, will you? Okay. Oh, fuck. It is. <laughs> we go, right, okay, what do we do now? Um, well, we can't fade it out, can we? No. Um, right. I'll phone the... The, the 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 chief of the of the basically the announcer the head of presentation okay the head of presentation was a lovely man called Ian Purden and it was late at night it was about half past eleven when this was going on and I and it was a comedy phone call because you, it's the sound of someone who's been in a deep sleep trying to answer the telephone which is on the bedside table there's lots of banging and crashing and things, alarm clocks falling to the floor and I went 
Ian, I'll be a problem here. Yeah, well, uh, we're putting out last week's program. Uh, you just going, oh, fuck. <laughs> the figure I heard was, it was £25,000 in repeat fees. <laughs> and at that point, I think they realised that being an announcer was not really my forte. So, <laughs> so what was I supposed to do? Well, obviously, uh, as it was a, an attachment, I was standing in the bar, the, the Langham Bar, which is now back as the Langham Hilton again, and the uh, personnel lady, as she was called, came and said to me, oh, uh, so how's it going then? And I went, well, you know, the attachment's coming to an end, and it was only a sort of training attachment, so looks like I'm going to have to go back to Essex. And she says, well, they don't want you back. <laughs> you know, really? Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, right, fair enough. So I must have been rather hard work. I went, okay, fair enough. So I thought, God, what am I going to do now? Um, I'm stuffed here. But as luck would have it, what happened next? Oh, yes. It seemed that um, the... The, the trails department, Radio 2 had a promotions department. I don't know whether it still does or not, which made all the promotional trailers. And in those days, the announcers voiced the trailers most of the time. And the guy that was uh, the producer, a bloke called Dirk Max, who's become very famous in the world of comedy, uh, had just got a gig with BBC sort of radio comedy. So therefore, there was a vacancy. So I applied for this job and got it even though I didn't want it, but I got it. So I'm right, okay, what am I going to do now? I've got a show willing, and, the, 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 it's, you know, a testament to her, really. Um, and uh, her name, Leslie Douglas, who is obviously a name that you've, because of, you're thinking a former controller of Radio 2 and Russell Brand, etc. But back then, she was, you know, a, a PA, and she ended up being my PA, even though she should have got the job as a production as a producer, because she was far better at it than me. And uh, you know, we got on famously. I soldiered on until eventually I could take it no more. And after five months, I just said to Ian Purden, who was the uh, presentation editor, I said, "Ian, I really can't stand this. You know how shit I am at this job. It's I'm awful at it." And he went, "Yes, you are. <laughs> I, I can't do this any longer." And he went, "Tell you what." How about I give you if I give you four announcing shifts a week as a freelance? Would that be good? I went bloody right. Tore both his arms off. Uh, I was also doing a Sunday program on Radio Shropshire at that particular point as well. So therefore, that that, that extra sixty quid came in pretty damn useful. And uh, and so that's absolutely marvelous. This is fantastic. Thank you so much. And I said, by the way, I'm sorry I only lasted five months. He said, oh, we bet about six or eight weeks. So you would last a lot longer than we expected <laughs> to. And so therefore, I was on my way at that point. And being a freelance, then I could do all sorts of stuff. So I started going through the Radio Times and looking at all the producer credits and thinking I worked with them so and so uh, you know at, at Radio Lesser I worked with them at Radio Carlisle so I phoned them up and said hello remember me yeah uh, got any work so I ended up doing stuff for Radio 4 on their travel programs and things like that and uh, I think Barry Norman and I did a, a series of programs going breakaway going places I think we went all over the place I'm going to go to Singapore I went to New York wow. it's absolutely marvellous you know, I had a great time doing that. And uh, and there was, yes, that's right. And every Friday, yeah, breakaway or going places, right? It was, it was a series in, you sit there in Radio 4 going, oh, gosh, I'm big school, this is. Radio 4, how marvellous. And still doing uh, all the uh, announcing shifts on, on Radio 2. And then, very sadly, uh, poor old Ray Moore died. And so, therefore, when he became ill and 
couldn't do the show any longer, his early breakfast show. Um, they got someone in to do his show. And so I ended up doing Night Ride, the late night show for late night people, which um, uh, you may not remember that because you're basically children. And, <laughs> and it, it was on it was about one until, one until three in the morning. And uh, it was, this was just, look at me. Look at me, Mar, top of the world. It was actually, I'm on the radio across the whole of the United Kingdom. This is very exciting. There's me, there's my studio manager, there's a tape operator, and hang on a second, there's 15 people in the cubicle next door, all with cans, cans of beer, with their back to me. What? Because <laughs> all the networks had closed down for the night, but the studio manager would stay up drinking until it started again. The oh. you know, Radio 4 started in the morning. So I'm going, excuse me? You know, and I remember just putting the talk back down saying, <clears throat> hello there. And one of the people just looked at me and this sort of lazy finger let, went to the talkback switch and just went, it only takes one of us to make a fool of ourselves at any one time. And that was, okay, oh, right, so that's me my place at the time there was a woman all the way through the show a woman was knitting and watching mtv <laughs> whilst i was on giving my all to the nation you know so uh but what happened was there was the early, there was the, the there was um there was also an early show as well as night ride uh, which ran from i think four until five thirty, and you did that on a three-month basis and what happened there i did it for three months and i think they liked it and decided why doesn't he do it all the time? So then I was really on my way, even though it was called the early show. And so therefore I got, right, here I am. I'm going to be a big star now, Ma. Just watch me go. And uh, the, what happened then was a few years later, it's about 94, 95, the BBC again, running scared of a, gov of a government, went, we need to make more of our programmes outside of London. So they went, what we'll do, we'll move the whole of Radio 2 to Birmingham. And so they went, Terry, because Terry Wogan had come back by then. And he went, yeah, we're moving Radio 2 to Birmingham. Well, you can fuck off for a start off. <laughs> Gloria Hunniford, how about going to Birmingham? And she elegantly probably said something very similar. Ken Bruce, bollocks, went right the way through the day. And everyone went, not a chance. And they go, oh, God, what are we going to do now? Alex, you're going to Birmingham. No, I'm not. And they went, well, the time slot's going to Birmingham. If you want to accompany it, you can. Okay, I'm going to Birmingham. <laughs> and so I went to Birmingham for 13 years. Wow. And by the time I got to Birmingham, or just after we got to Birmingham, we, re we, I re we managed to wrench the title of the early show off the, the listings. It became, you know, Alex Lester. And and so it remained up until you know its demise. Um, and then what happened was, I got a new controller, Jim Moyer, and you know G as far as all the Radio Two controllers are concerned, Jim was the one that uh, had my back more than anybody else, I suppose. Um, though not quite as much of my back as I wanted, in terms of on one occasion I've been doing a lot of I did so I did a lot of depths. So if Wogan was away, I'd do his show. Uh, the only fact, the only show I never did was uh, Jimmy Young, but I did all of those. Sarah Kennedy, I did loads and loads of times as well. And so this is fantastic. This is great, you know. And uh, and I thought this is going well. So I said to uh, to to Jim Moyer one day, I said, Jim, um, you know, I'm a bit fed up with doing, you know, early in the morning like that. Do you think, uh, you know, am I going to get a, a daytime show or what? Yes or no? 
which is for me, screwing my courage to the sticking point. Yes or no? And he went, hmm, possibly. <laughs> which meant no. So uh, that uh, that was that. So they go, and so and then gradually what happens is you know they move on to other people, and so therefore you know the the depths and stuff dried up. Uh, two two episodes of Call My Bluff and co-presenting the boat show on BBC Two didn't make it into an exo- particularly exotic career. I don't think Jonathan Ross was ever worried about that. But you know, in the end, you go to think to yourself, uh, what am I doing here? Um, I'm having a really good time. I don't like the hours very much, but it's not killing me particularly because, you know, I would be in bed by about half past seven. I'd get up. It used to go three until six for most of its time. It went three until six. And I'd be up at, you know, ten past two, going to the studio. I'd be back in bed again by quarter past six. And that was my day. And if I did have any other work to do, which is actually not much because I'm not much of a, not really a great voiceover artist or anything like that, um, I'd go and do that. But otherwise, you know, I would just, uh, you know, see friends and do stuff, which was really a rather good way of spending your time, actually. And also, being a national network, the money was good. So what's not to like about that? Absolutely. You know, you can you can sit there and go, well, I actually never really made it, did you? And go, no, I didn't. Or, well, actually, I was on the biggest, you know, on the biggest radio station in Europe for 30 years. That's not bad, really, either, is it? No. Mm, yeah, okay, I'll, 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 I'll grasp that particular one. I'll, I'll, I'll have that one. <laughs> you, you, you certainly made it. Alex, you, you certainly made it. I mean, you, you mentioned Terry Wogan. I've got to ask, I mean, what was it like working with Terry Wogan? Uh, he, again, this is the thing. They're all rather wonderful. Um, and Terry was, was fabulous. Terry is, was brilliant because he hated the management with an absolute <laughs> passion because he knew that they were idiots. And, you know, they had this thing of going, about the BBC, if it ain't broke, break it which they did, but you had to be aware of your place because he was, you know, he was top dog. And I remember the first time I did the Ken Bruce show, of course, there's a two-way, isn't there? So you go, oh, I did a two-way on national radio. Lovely Terry Wogan, this is marvellous. And my producer said, make sure Terry doesn't drone on, won't you? And so after a, sort of a minute or two of this, I said, Terry, I've got to get on. And the next morning, obviously I beat his nose with that, but the next morning... He finished his show and said, well, that's all from me. Here's Alex Lester. He's got so much to say. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then he went home. I put the topic up. Oh, grovelling apologies, grovelling apologies. <laughs> and he was absolutely fine. But you know, if you know, because he, he was such a master of his craft, that if you if you'd ever, if you were having a, a, a two-way and you thought maybe you'd just got, you know, Jimmy Young hated the two-ways because it was really, you know, a battle of wits. Is that, you know, Wogan's far cleverer than me, but sometimes you might just get the edge. And what he would do, he would, wouldn't say anything. And there'd just be a pause. <laughs> and to the people at home, it sounded like you'd sent something really terrible, you know. And you go, oh, God. Yeah. So he, he would just go, the silence, that's fine. And you just go, bloody hell. He's done it again. He's done it again. So he never ever got the better. I'm not that I would try to really. But uh, no, he was great. But they all, Jimmy Young was a sweetheart as well, you know. John Dunn, too. Um, Steve Wright, yeah. Steve Wright mellowed a lot, actually, over the years. You know, Ed Stewart. Yeah, but uh, I, I think Ken Bruce was responsible for my first ever daytime show on uh, Radio 2 because what he did, his, his then wife was pregnant and about to give birth. And he said, look, if she gives birth right in the, you know, 
I'll, I'll, what I'll do is when things look like they're imminent, instead of phoning the controller, who's Francis Lyon, who only liked stars, uh, she had a very curious way with personalities, <clears throat> like Bungalow Bill Wiggins ended up doing a, the afternoon show for a, for a week because he was having a relationship with Joan Collins at the time, which made it really a really good idea to give him a, ra- a radio show. Um, he, he, it wasn't a good show. Um, and he said, look, I'll, what I'll do is I'll wait, then I'll phone Francis. So it'll be too late for her to get a celeb in. So his poor wife, uh, how's he going, dear? How are the contractions? Screams, I'm going to have a bath. So he had a bath. They took her after screaming off to the hospital. And then he phoned and said, can't make it today. And he went, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's it's 8 o'clock. What are we going to do? He said, well, Alex Lester can do it. But, 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 can't we get uh, Nigel Dempster or someone? No, too late. So I did it. Did the show, oh, and it was great. And you know, and <laughs> never did it again until after she had ceased to be controller. But then I did it lots after that. You know, uh, though I must admit, I never really, really fully grasped uh, Popmaster on occasion because it was it was too complicated for my poor little brain. But I, you know, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And it was great. And being around, particularly in London, where you had you know the whole of the BBC going on. You know, when I was in London, I used to come out in the morning and I'd bump into old Bruno Brooks was on two on Radio One the same time on on Radio Two or thereabouts. You know, bump into one another. You know, uh, and it was marvellous. It was, you know, it felt uh, felt big time. It was exciting. Alex, your answer can't be luck. I mean, why do you think you you were there for so long? Luck. Um, <laughs> you can't say that. Okay, um, number of reasons. Um, I can remember a programme director saying to me when I was at Radio Air, actually saying, you know, you're not very good, but you're no trouble. Uh, That may have been it. Um, But I think they never really understood it. But the figures were always good. And therefore, they thought we better leave it. And also, compared to, you know, the Evanses of this world, I was very cheap. (laughs) Um, But I can remember very early on, when it was an announcer job, it was part of the the rotor. Uh, one Radio Two controller saying, "If we had the money, we'd have we'd have personalities on all night." Okay, well, if that makes us feel good, doesn't it? And also, and one another controller said, "The uh, the announcers will fill with music overnight until the network starts again in the morning." That was their view. So therefore, there was old habits die hard. So therefore, they thought he's doing an okay job. Uh, and it seems to be going all right. We can actually concentrate on, you know, the slebs who we love, and so that was the thing. You see, you, so you very rarely had any interaction with any management people at all. It was just, you know, Jim Moyer was one of the only people who I saw regularly, uh, mainly because I was doing quite a lot of depths at the time, and so he would come in in the morning if I was doing Wogan or what have you. Um, and uh, I knew that uh, things were going to go south when he said to me, "You know, Alex." You're a safe pair of hands, which is actually a, a killer. You know, you can look at it two ways. I always look at it in a nook. I think it's a pejorative term. You're a safe pair of hands. Oh, shit. Okay, <laughs> that's me done then. Um, but, you know, we, we just got on with it. And the fact is that, as I say, it did pretty well. And it went through various incarnations because originally it was just, you know, it stopped being me, the studio manager and the tape operator, and it became me. Right just me then it became me and a producer 
who went home after who also produced Janice Long as well. So therefore, what I was doing, there was no Janice was having uh, sessions and things like that. There was no point for them sitting around because we basically we made our own material, the audience and and myself. And so the producer wasn't really necessary on that occasion. And then we got you know we got a budget. That was the thing. That was a uh, thing that Jim Moyer did. It was a budget. And so therefore they go, right, okay, what are we going to do with this? So therefore we can actually now have you know, a producer. We have people to answer the phones if necessary. Not that we, I never got that much in the way of phone stuff. My stuff was usually start off with letters, obviously. Then it went to faxes and then it went to email. And then it went to, I suppose, texts as well uh, by the time I was done. Um, and so therefore we started and over a period, as Wogan always used to say, you know, how do you become popular? very simply be there for a long time and so therefore it evolved and you know people i still get you know emails and things from people who've been with me for 40 years um which is really very very nice indeed uh you know people were coming out a revolving door some people appear and disappear uh but you know and and the program evolved and we started to do different things with it and also as the station changed we were able to do different different things as well uh so when you had the likes of jonathan ross etc talking about cock rings on the saturday morning you think to yourself well we're after the watershed here if we want to talk about cock rings, we can too <laughs> we didn't actually we did a lot of farting yeah. a lot of fart gags uh and we did we did some lists as well, which a late friend of mine wrote, who was it was a comedy writer. Uh, he was responsible for the real water sketch, actually, in the, in the two Ronnies. Um, wow. And uh, he did a, one of the best ones we did. We actually did get a couple of complaints. Was it was it was Kylie's uh, fifty pence uh, golden hot pants era, if you remember that. Yeah, yeah. And so therefore, we did a list of uh, basically uh, using Kylie's ass as a unit of measurement. <laughs> So, you know, my God, that truck just missed me by a Kylie's ass. You know, and, you know, we loved all that. And, you know, see, and, but the management didn't seem to, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. And so, therefore, it was, it was good. And they, they, they started to get more timid laterally. You know, again, I think there's a cycle with the BBC, which means we've just got the licence fee renewed, so we can, the charter's renewed, so we've got a couple of years to start doing interesting stuff. Yeah. Okay, and now we're halfway through, and the pressure's starting to mount, the Daily Mailer on our asses again, what are we going to do? Oh my God, the Tories are after us as well. Ah, help, 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 help. We'll do anything you like. Okay, phew, we've got it again. And it goes round and round. And so therefore, I've been around the cycle, seen the cycle sort of three or four times over the years. You mentioned that, you know, you you still have listeners who, who've been listening to listening to you for 40 years and they, they say, you know, wonderful things. But you, at that time of, of the day, you must have had some strange listeners as well. Oh, yeah. But they were part of the fun, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> there, was, there was a bloke called John who used to send sort of rather curious sort of missives, which, you know, accompanied by a photograph of him naked, smoking a pipe. Um <laughs> And so, and so you go, okay, that's fair enough. Someone once said they were the reincarnation of the skater Sonia Heine and sent me a pigtail. Uh, oh, was, my God. Yeah, exactly, uh, which is rather grey and not very hygienic. The, the crowning glory, which is just, it's, actually, it's poetry, this. Um, and uh, which actually, and he spelt my name right and everything. He says, Alex Lester, you are a cunt. I hope you die a horrible death. Fuck you. Which... <laughs> You know, you've got a fan when that, isn't that good? 
It's brilliant. I'd have loved to have shaken his hand. I think that was just so fantastic. And have you got, you've got that framed, Alex. I've got it framed, yes, exactly. <laughs> that is you know, brilliant. Whenever my stepchildren come to stay, the first thing you do is if they, they, they bring friends, is always to take them to see this particular piece, piece of, uh, of, of, uh, of fan mail. But yeah, you know, it's the moment you say hello, someone's going to hate you. And, you know, when I finished at WM, I got a nice card, a nice, nice picture, a nice picture card, and I, on opening it just said "Good riddance." So, <laughs> you know, it's fine. It hurts to start off with, but then you go. Actually, I don't think it's me. I think it's probably them. If you're in a position where you have to sit there sending vile abuse to people, you need maybe to look at yourself in the mirror and go, "Maybe it's just me." Uh, but uh, oh, no, I've you know, Alex. my career hangs on that one. That is- I just, just amazing. Thank you. It's so, good, isn't it? Thank you so much for sharing that. It was a technical problem. You heard something on there you shouldn't have done. Oh, yeah. I also have always wanted to know, did you come up with the Dark Lord? Was that your name? Um, the audience called me the Dark Lord. Right, okay. Um, but again, this is one thing that, you know, a lot of people have never had the luxury of producers. You know, they have a format and that's it. They go and run the format. The best thing I had was I had the luxury. I had the tunes... I was also able, latterly, to have put some of my own in. I was also able to move them around. I could drop them, this sort of thing. And then um, I had producers, and we would come up with things to do. And uh, and I I had some really wonderful producers over the years of all sorts of stuff. Um, and uh, which were responsible for various things that we did. Um, in fact, some of the audience can re- remind me of things I've completely forgotten about. But, um, you know, for some bizarre reason, at one point during the, ni- the 90s, I think, no, no, early 2000s, no, it was the 90s, that's right, um, we had a knitting pattern for Frieda the Woolen Fridge of Doom. Um, <laughs> and because a lot of tr- got a lot of truck drivers at that time right, who were great, but also we always other people who were doing things as well. So, uh, you know, not only just working, people were trying to get to sleep. That's why it was quite an interesting audience to serve because they're all doing different things. Some Starting at three and going till six, it meant that there were some people who were winding down after a wild and crazy night out. Some people were actually halfway through a night shift. People who were trying to get to sleep but couldn't. Yeah. People who just woken up for some reason or other. And also at four o'clock, certainly, the drivers would hit the road. So you had that. Uh, so you had all those different audiences to remember when you were talking. And so, therefore, we would weave in different things. Also, and one of the criticisms that people often made about the programme was, oh, it sounds like a little club. Well, yes, but at the same time, we always are inclusive. So we actually we are always explaining what we are doing. Yeah. You know. Also, one of the ones that we we cooked up, which was we went really well. Uh, and uh, if you if you can piss off Silla Black, you're doing pretty well. This one um, was, you know, we were fed up with celebrities. We did. We were anti-celeb. Because they were everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, and what do they do? But we said, right, okay, if you see a celebrity, very politely offer them your autograph (laughs) because they're no better than you are. So, therefore, it's a good idea if you always be polite, say, excuse me, would you like my autograph? Because why should they have all the, you know, that whole ego thing going on? And, uh, Someone said to me that Roy Wood had gone, oh, God, not that bloke off the radio. Um, someone tried to give me their autograph, which I refused because I wasn't famous as far as I was concerned, uh, and Silla Black got annoyed, apparently. So, <laughs> That's uh, amazing. Uh, 
so that's that's good. So that was so that was worth it. But um, yeah, that was one of the little things we did. And then you know it because the one of the best things about it because I used to say to Steve Wright, look, you know, you may have an audience which is far larger than mine, but they're not actually listening to you. They're doing something else. You know, with me, they're listening. You know, they're, if they're in a cab, they're stuck in that cab for three hours or whatever, and so they have got the radio on. They're not doing anything else. They're listening to me. Or if they're in bed, they're listening to me. So therefore, my audience may be smaller, but unless they're they're paying attention, which is not strictly true, I suppose. But we were able to do things. And once you throw something out, and that's the advantage of having a big audience, um, that the, you can throw ideas out, and you know that you'll get some response. Yeah. You know. Um, and so, therefore, you, you'd admittedly, you, because Wogan used to have 30 regulars who would just provide all his material. I think Bob Monkhouse once said to him, what you do is you get all this stuff from your audience, you put it in a book, and you sell it back to them. He went, yeah, it's, I certainly do. Um, <laughs> so I never had quite that sort of, uh, that, that, I was never on, the, on that sort of scale. But and you go, how about this? You, so you might outline an idea, or someone would come up with an idea, go, this is a good idea, and then people would add to it. And that became, when, once the idea of, once, once we got more, uh, electronic gizmo is more sort of social media, if you like, and we started doing sort of emails and uh, texts and things. We could then use that to actually get as much material as possible, and that's how things occurred. I mean, it was the biggest station, wasn't it? And um, and and still is, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, but um, I mean, you were there for, for for such a long time, which is just uh, an incredible achievement. I mean. We, we had to get to the end at some point, Alex, but having been there for so long and been so successful and, and built this family, this club that you talk about, and I, I I really buy into what you say about building that club. I think that's exactly the right thing to do. It, it must have really hurt when it all came to an end. <laughs> and some. Um, you can always tell, though, can't you, when the writing's on the wall, um, because what happened was a new controller started and they went, all right, we haven't got any money. Saying, all right, okay, you haven't got any money. So what we're going to do is we're going to put some repeats out in your slot. Um, why? Well, because um, it'll save money. You know, well, if you look at what the daytime people are being paid and what I'm being paid, and also the repeat fees for the stuff you're putting out in the in that slot, you're not going to save very much at all, are you? But it, you know made a difference. So therefore, they, what they did was they basically axed Janice and myself. And so therefore, and then she got four nights and I got three, which is fair enough. That's what they wanted to do. And, and then they imposed a, uh, a format on us, which was really not very inventive, rather, rather creaky. You're thinking, right. And they, and they said, right, this is a two-year contract on this. And by that time, I'm thinking, oh, I'm getting a bit long in the tooth anyway. So uh, there's no point in leaving now because where am I going to go? Uh, oh, they reduced the cash as well. So, yeah, we were, we were hammered on all sides. So you're right, what am I going to do? Stalk off in a huff. I'll hang on. Maybe, you know, something will change for the better. But it didn't. Um, and so it was a fairly miserable... Again, I had a lovely producer, the mighty Thor. Um, and uh, so he was the slenderest man you'll ever meet but he did like going to Norway. Um, so <laughs> he became the mighty Thor. And, but, you know, the audience didn't like it because they told us in large numbers. Um, and, and so therefore, you go, right, okay, fine. This is what we'll do. And it was, they invented various rather 
you know, shitty features and things that we had to do. Um, and after two years of that, I just wondered, what's going to happen now? And they went, right, okay, we're going to uh, just put repeats out throughout the night. So basically you and Janice are toast. And so on that note, I was summoned to the controller's office where he sat with his deputy and said, there's no money, so that's it. Um, we're going to offer you a three-month extension. But if you mention this to anybody at all, we'll withdraw that three months. And that was it. I timed it and I recorded it actually as well. Uh, two minutes and 11 seconds. And that's my career at Radio 2 finished without even someone saying thank you. That was, that's the thing. I, you, know, you can look at your career and go, oh, that worked well. That didn't, maybe it could have been a bigger, could have been a bigger person there or whatever. But that bit actually undermined to me so much of what uh, we did. You know, well, thanks. Is that all you think? That's all you can do? You know, there was always a passive aggressive thing going on with management anyway, um, because, of course, I suppose you know, they can kick the little people because, of course, you know, you can't you can't go to Chris Evans, for instance, and tell him what for. Well, you certainly could. <laughs> I'll tell you a Wogan story because you can't tell. You couldn't tell Wogan what to do, really. You know, it had to be sort of his idea. And also he was earning far more than you were. So therefore, you're probably, if you're in that position, you're probably slightly annoyed to start off with because you may have the power, but you don't have the power you think you have. So you've got to kick somebody. I know, how about the little guys? And of course, that, that, was, me, that was me. We did two things at uh, showing Wogan's hatred of, uh, uh, of, of management. Um, he'd been told, because this is the Russell Brand thing again. They were promoting him like mad, you know. And so, therefore, he, Wogan had to read a sort of written trail every day for Russell Brand. And he'd go, well, you see, Russell Grant's on at uh, 8 o'clock or 10 o'clock tonight. Russell, oh, good old Russell. We love Russell, though. And, of course, and, the, and the edict came down, tell him to stop doing that. And he went, oh, terribly sorry. I've been getting it wrong all this time. It's not Russell Grant. It's Joe Brand. <laughs> and I think they gave up after that. And another time, because when we started doing uh, websites and things like that, we actually started making videos as well. I had a wonderful producer called James Walsh, and we actually put together all... They're still on YouTube, actually. You can find them. Uh, you know, we uh, we launched Broadcasting House into space on one occasion uh, with uh, John Humphreys being sucked up the air conditioning, uh, which is quite fun. Uh, we did quite a lot of those, actually. And they get they got big figures as far as the, watch it, the people watching them was concerned more so than other programs during the day that were actually doing videos as well. So therefore, they didn't like us doing them. Somehow it undermined the ones that were for the stars. But sort of, sort of, that didn't go down with us very well. But um, we decided early on when we started getting websites, we had a website, so we're like, okay, fair enough. It's about time we brought back the Butlins and Oblinese competition because you, know, you haven't had anything like that for years. So what I want you to do is to send a picture of your knee or knees. We don't want... Anything else, just the knees, right? No faces, no legs, no hands, just the knees. And we got a load of these. We stuck them on our website. And for a laugh, which is our fault, because, of course, it alerted them. If you alerted the management, then they'd find some way to try and give you a kicking. And they went, oh, what are you doing? You, you, you're putting people's knees up. I went, yes. Um, right. Uh, okay. Well, you have to make sure that the knees are over 18. Uh, but okay, 
<laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll say that. And so we're like, well, okay, if you, loving all the knees you're sending in, uh, but uh, please make sure they are over to 18. And the audience is far cleverer. And they went, well, one of my knees is 72, but the other is only six months old. <laughs> and I told Wogan, and he went on and on and on and on about the on this breakfast show for ages. Fucking and you know, yes, that the the end was a bit of a downer. But you look back on it. And my wife, the dark lady, was says, "You look, just look back at what you did, you know, and go, yeah, yeah, it was a really good time." And when I did get the bums rush, um, Donald Klein, who I mentioned very early on, who's a, a, my sort of mentor at Radio T, who really knew stuff, he was brilliant, American guy. I phoned him up because other people have been phoning up, going, "Oh, it's terrible, isn't it? Awful, Bloody terrible." God, after all this time, they've got the, you've got the, you know, you've got the bums rush. This is terrible. He phoned up and went, he always called to me Lester. Lester, you had a good innings, didn't you? <laughs> actually, you know what? Yes, yeah. I did. It was actually the way to look at it. Yeah. You know, I had a good innings and it was great. You know, I can't really complain about that. No, absolutely. I think your wife is right. Look back at the, you know, and I, it's, it's been amazing talking to you for, for this Crunch and Roll podcast, but. The, the passion I hear from you as well, talking about some of the things that you did on that show, is just it's wonderful to hear, Alex. It really is. Well, bearing in mind that I never wanted a job where I had to wear a suit, I think it turned out all right <laughs> in the end. And also the fact is, you know, I was never very academic. So just so basically to go to work, play some nice songs, find some new music, which I liked as well, and basically fool about uh, with a whole load of like-minded people, generally, apart from the person who says you're a cunt, hope you die or whatever. But um, you know, it was uh, it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. You know, and uh, people, you know, I f- I found my voice and I found my tribe as well. I think the coin cliche because they they were there and it's uh, and it was great. It was you know, and, and look for, for, from Radio Two. Um, the- BBC Local Midlands, you did the breakfast show on WM, BBC Oxford as well, you did a bit on there. Um, we'll, 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 we'll brush over WM, shall we? That, that's when I first, I don't know if we actually met, I, I gazed I at you. I saw you in the corridor. Yeah, I gazed at you, you ran, once. You ran and hid. No, 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 I, 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 I did a bit of a fanboy thing where I just stared at you because you were Alex Lester and I was in a different studio, I was staring and I think you looked up. And I thought, oh shit, he's seen me. So then I just acted weird and went. But um, yeah, you just said hello. <laughs> know, yeah, that, that would have been the normal I'm thing. I'm delighted. To <laughs> Anybody said hello? Yeah, oh my god! I did. You I must did, think I'm somebody. I was just concerned that you realised it was me that sent that letter, Alex. That was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> you check your handwriting. Yeah, it's. Yeah. Uh, I think the person who who wrote that it's, it's 19. Uh, 1991 that so I think that person has probably died a horrible death themselves by now well, fingers crossed um, yeah <laughs> can't be, can't be, yeah what a warm heartwarming human being I am I'm so marvellous and, and obviously now you're on, on on greatest hits as well I mean are you enjoying that yeah I do it's very different because it's a, it's a you know I'm running a music format uh, which is very tightly formatted but I do have some leeway in terms of the things I can talk about because I do five hours which is you know uh, I, luckily it's not all live but you know so three hours is a music marathon which is basically you know you you have done these things uh, many times yourself so therefore I, I talk five times an hour you know the, the music's there I don't do anything with it I can't do anything with it nor would I you know you know want to do it because one of the things that I find sometimes you talk to people in the industry whatever and they they're lamenting that they you know i can't do this i can't do that you go okay fair enough 
what is the station you're on? What is it supposed to be doing and why is it doing it? If they say that's what they want you to do, well, I suppose, really, you've got to do it because otherwise uh, there's no point because they won't like you working there, so you'll end up being unemployed fairly quickly. And, you know, if it's if you can make a success of what it is, of what you're doing, you can take something from there. So, you know, it's a tricky one because no one likes to be told, you know, you know you've got to, can't talk for more than 17 seconds or whatever. Um, that, I'm delighted to say that uh, Greatest Hits isn't quite so strict as about that. So... Um, but I, you know, I put stuff out on my Facebook, uh, what have you, and people respond, and then we, you know, we we talk about that, um, and it's, you know, I'm surprised that uh, you know at my age it's, I'm still doing it really, um, and that and that's fine. Uh, I still like doing it um, because every time when the Radio Two thing finished, I thought right, I'm done now, and then WM phoned up and said, "Would you like to do our breakfast show?" So I did that for two years. Then when that finished, I thought right, I'm done now. And the very same day, because uh, Bauer had actually heard me saying goodbye on WM, and they phoned up about an hour later, and so you know, this is marvelous. I thought, I'm, I'm I'm done now. That's it. I am done. Retirement now. Done. Done. Oh God. Okay, fair enough. That's nice. Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's it's great. So it's uh, so I'm very I'm very pleased. Again, you know, it'll go it'll go until it doesn't any longer, and then you go right, fine. You do know, that's but luckily at my age, it doesn't. It's not to, it's not a be all and end all. I like doing it, but if it stopped tomorrow, I don't know whether I'd go searching for something. But you know, I don't know. You'll move so on to might, might come knocking. Well, you'll move on to boom. Surely that's that's the next. Uh, again, there was a friend of mine always said there's a, a, a Middle Eastern proverb: never name a well at which you will not drink. Okay. Um, but um, you know, again, uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't think I'm old enough for boom yet. <laughs> oh yeah, Alex. Thank you so much. Um, this is. Um, it, very rare where I just sit back and just listen and, and I, I, I think it's been fascinating. So thank you so much for being on our podcast. I genuinely, from, from myself and Simon, who works on the on the pod, uh, who's the brains of it really, um, thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure. I love talking about me, goodness <laughs> sake. You know, I'm all ham. <laughs> well, you, you, you mentioned um, that you, you weren't particularly good at voiceover stuff, but did you do any voiceover stuff? I did some, some uh, voiceovers. Uh, but what happened was that uh, when when I was doing some for sort of uh, GMTV, I seem to remember, and also um, there was a, a one of these many sports channels in the in the nineties, Screen Sport, which was a multilingual uh, channel, and uh, and I remember having a howling with mirth at uh, there was a, an athlete called Fanny Blankers Cohen, uh, which uh, killed me, and I had to do about eighty thousand takes. But they were, they actually ran out of money very quickly for the simple reason that they were paying too well, and so therefore I can remember being there, and there were there was all sorts of stuff going on and new things coming in. So therefore I got paid a certain amount per hour. And it overran, and it overran, and it overran, and it overran, and it overran. And eventually, I exited the studio hoarse, but I'd earned a grand, <laughs> which is amazing. And they realized, of course, that when they put the uh, invoice in, they're going, shit, we can't sustain this. So they actually, they, they, they reduced their rates by about 75%, so no one could ever make as much money ever again. So that was, that was my one big payday as a voiceover artist. Uh, well, uh, it would be uh, an absolute honour for you to, to, to finish the pod. 
Now, you've been listening to Crunch and Roll with me, Alex Lester. Subscribe on your favourite podcast app to get every new episode as soon as they drop. Crunch and Roll is a 969 media production presented by John Fox and produced by Simon Bochowski. Right as well, Alex. That's amazing. Thank you so much. I took a, I took a run at that one, so uh, that's, the, that's the thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah.